morning we are continuing our exploration through the scriptures and for our series through Lent in which we have called Restore Us. This series of looking at God's restoration is a, a time through Lent in which we are exploring a Sunday morning series on finding and creating space in the midst of our busy and troubled lives to be transformed by the story of Jesus as he was led to his death and ultimately his resurrection. Last week as we began our Lent series, we did so by looking at Jesus' temptation with the tempter in the desert. And we, we begin to look at the ways in which we have these longings, these hungers inside of us that the tempter loves to use, to breed discontentment and dissatisfaction with, to begin to attack our identity. We all hunger throughout life for various things. And one that, one, often the tempter looks to undermine our identity in Christ by breeding discontentment and distraction in our lives through the ways of lust and hungers that can drive our appetites, our affirmation, and our ambition. Looking at the temptation of Jesus, we looked at ways to intentionally grow in our contentment with God our provider for both substance and deliverance from temptation. And today we begin week two of our series through Lent. This, this look at wonder and mystery is what we are going to be exploring this morning, this idea that there is still wonder and mystery. And, and even though we don't like to often think about wonder and mystery and we don't like to face those anxious moments in our own lives of wonder, there is some good use for them. As the video said, Lent reminds us to pause. In a busy life, in a, in a world that is surrounded by distractions, we do not pause easily or often enough. In a busy and complicated world that is overwhelmed with so much noise and distractions and voices and troubles, too often we too then become overwhelmed to forget to take our time before the Lord, to pause before the Lord in both an attitude of silence but also in this attitude of surrender in which we, we allow him to speak to us. This morning we own and face that we live in a culture that is not only busy and overwhelming and distracting, but at times it is also an information overload. We have a culture that has endless amounts of information on demand and knowledge at our fingertips. Our phones can answer questions. How, how big Google is the Grand Canyon? And it can answer it. We can use Google and find facts in a matter of seconds. We can diagnose our health concerns on WebMD. We check history through Wikipedia. We have TVs that stream news instantly as it breaks into our homes. We've gone from a people that say, Oh, I know whatever I was thinking of will come back to me when I lay in bed too. If I don't Google this right now, it's going to bother me. Have you heard people say that? We've become a people that think we have it all, and we know it all, and we have all of the information which we could ever need to figure out everything and to explain everything at our fingertips. We have the answers for everything, or at least we think we do. This morning we look for God to restore with us a trust in him that allows us to face both the tensions of wonder and mystery, not needing to know 
everything, not needing to have all of the information on demand. <clears throat> Having all the information on uh, demand and at my fingertips, I enjoyed. I love talking to my TV remote rather than going through the guide. I, I enjoy using my phone to set reminders. I enjoy having a library that has history uh, collections. I always want more input. More input. That might be a quote that you remember if you were an 80s cult fan of movies like me. Does anyone remember the movie Short Circuit? No? All right, we got a couple. You already recognize that line, more, more input. In 1986, a sci-fi comedy movie by the name of Short Circuit hit the theaters. I wasn't allowed to see it in theaters, so I had to wait till it hit A to Z video, and that felt like a lifetime. That was a lifetime ago that A to Z video was even a thing. In this movie, the U.S. hires two kind of hippie-like inventors to design an army of robots. And this is uh, based in the Cold War, and what they were supposed to do is these robots were designed to eliminate the need for humans, and they were going to go behind enemy lines and drop nuclear bombs. However, the inventors were more interested in using them for relief work and aid in, in countries that were having problems. And when a lightning bolt strikes the robot number five, it scrambles its programming and develops a sense of consciousness a sense of free will, and a desire to learn. And it goes against its program. As he becomes aware and he sees a culture in which everything is at our fingertips, he goes into heaven. I mean, he, he is studying everything. The robot goes on this mission to learn everything because in his identity, he says, he feels a higher call than his programmed directive. He names himself Johnny Five. And he develops this almost childlike desire to seek after any information to answer questions on mortality, God, love. A lot of times, we could be like Johnny Five and just look to kind of pull every information into our world. One of my favorite moments is when the robot uh, begins to do some research on his programming. And he says, I've been programmed to say kill, to, dissem to dissemble. To make dead, number five cannot do that. And his inventor looking at him says, why can you not? To which the robot replies, Dr. Newton Crosby, the doctor does not know it's wrong to kill? And surprised by this, the inventor says, of course I know it's wrong to kill, but who told you? In which the robot replies, I told me. This morning we're going to look at a story in the Bible that uh, is a lot like Johnny Five in the movie Short Circuit. We're going to be looking at the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is this highly educated, we might even say programmed and trained and accomplished religious leader that seemingly has all of the information and all of the answers at his fingertips. He is the highest of them all. And he's got all of the answers. But he encounters this guy named Jesus. And in breaking out of his programming, Nicodemus begins to go against everything he knows, and he seeks out Jesus, and he becomes aware that everything that he knows has become unraveled. And he finds trust in Jesus as he embraces not knowing everything. Together, I invite you to look at John 3, 1 through 17 with me. I invite you to follow along with me in your Bible or in the pew Bible in front of you, but you'll also find it on the screen in front of you. John 3, 1 through 17. 
Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? asked Nicodemus. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we, can, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things. And you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of earthly, th heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who has come from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must also be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's a great passage. It's a passage that we look at often. And, and even uh, this morning as, as um, Betty shared about God still doing miracles, I had to think of this passage of how will you know uh, of heavenly things if you haven't been born of the Spirit? And this idea that whoever is born of the Spirit then also blows with the wind. And there's this ancient book that is out of print now, and it's called The Lutheran Reformers Against the Anabaptists. And it's from the time of the Reformation, in which Luther's disciples begin to pick apart what they don't like about the Anabaptists. And in it, he says, they move with the Spirit like the wind moves on water. And there's no, no uh, resolve to them, in his opinion. That verse says, those who have this dependent on the Spirit have no kind of resolve to them. Kind of like jazz music, it's just, it goes. John's telling of, of Nicodemus is, um, actually, John's telling is of the, this gospel, of his story, is much different than any of the other apostles. In fact, John opens up his book with this kind of apologetic defense of, in the beginning, it's almost his apologetic defense of, of Genesis. It's a retelling of Genesis. And in doing so, it resembles more of this uh, Genesis, like I said, story than it does a manger scene. And John does this to kind of connect the divinity of Jesus to God from the beginning of time. And we don't find that anywhere else in any of the Gospels. And next, John shows how Jesus recruited his disciples. In fact, he shows that Jesus changes rabbinic tradition by saying, uh, it's not so much at the top students are going to get picked up by a rabbi to be disciple, but Jesus went after disciples. And doing so, John begins to connect Jesus to the common people. Next story that John shows is that Jesus' first miracle of turning the water into wine. And John does this to prove that God's blessing is on Jesus. 
And right before this Nicodemus story, John tells the account of Jesus throwing the business people out of the Father's temple. Doing so, John connects the, his readers with the idea that Jesus is going to turn the world on its head. The world is going to be turned upside down, and no stone, including the temple, was going to be left unturned. Next, we find John tells this story of Nicodemus, a story that is found no, in no other part of the Bible and no other part, gospel. Why does John tell the story of Nicodemus next? With the story of Nicodemus, we often get talking about what it means to be saved now for heaven later. And I don't actually think that is the basis of this passage. And, and we're not going to explore that this morning, but I actually think there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's happening in this story, and there's multiple layers to it. And with any story, there's always multiple layers to it. And I, this morning, I just want to point out a few things that I think are happening in the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. According to John's account of this story, Nicodemus approaches Jesus and says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher and that you have come from God. Jesus doesn't wait for Nicodemus to answer a question. Did you pick up on that when we read through it? Jesus gives him an answer right away. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God or unless they are born again. It's kind of an interesting reply to someone that hasn't asked a question. In fact, Nicodemus shows up on the scene and just says, hey, Jesus, I'm affirming who you are. It's obvious that you can do some crazy stuff. You are healing people. It's getting back to us in the Sanhedrin. And uh, I, I can tell that you are from God. And Jesus doesn't even give him this chance to ask a question. He begins to automatically drive it back to the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus spent his whole time driving conversations back to the kingdom of God. He taught that it was at hand and that it was already in their midst. Jesus implies to Nicodemus is missing out on what God is doing by instantly inserting this line. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And for, for Nicodemus, that would have been a really big slap in the face. A guy that's dedicated his whole life to learning who God is and what God is doing and knowing everything that they have recorded throughout history about God to be able to uh, get this insult that says you are actually missing out on the kingdom of God would have been a very eye-opening experience for Nicodemus. Matthew says, as he went, as, Matthew says it like this about Jesus, as he went through all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus went preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It was the center of his message. Even here we see Jesus' intent with Nicodemus is to drive the conversation not about who God is or any, answering any questions that Nicodemus might have and why he's come to seek Jesus out, but to drive the conversation around the kingdom of God. See, for Nicodemus, the kingdom of God, or the day of the Lord, had become uh, kind of redefined in his lifetime. And once when prophets talked about the day of the Lord in ancient uh, Jewish history, they were talking about this time in which they believed the Messiah was coming. But throughout the history, that kind of got changed as they waited for thousands of years. And it became this kind of future, we're going to get to some point. And when that happens, we'll share in God's blessing, the dead will rise, uh, all of our enemies will be kind of killed off. And so for Nicodemus, when he hears Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, he equates it to this kind of redefinition uh, of the day of the Lord. It was this future date, this time of restoration that was yet to come. It, it's still coming. God was showing Nicodemus that restoration was already beginning in their midst. 
Very true, they tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God or unless they are born again. Hey, open up, Nicodemus. God is already doing something and you are missing out. Or unless he was going to be reborn is what Jesus challenges him. He was going to continue to miss out on what God is doing. And for his teacher, for this teacher with all the information at his fingertips, with all the answers, this confused him. And he said, what do you mean, reborn? In this passage, it's obvious that John was showing the aspect of Jesus that Paul explained this. God chose what the world considers ordinary and what it despises and what it considers to be nothing in order to destroy what it considered to be something. God was turning those who thought they had all of the answers and all of the information at their fingers on their heads. Nicodemus isn't just a religious leader that Jesus is challenging. He's actually the upper crust of religious leaders. We know that he's a wealthy guy because later when he does become a Christian, Nicodemus brings some expensive spices to Jesus' funeral. And as a Pharisee, he would have been sworn in before three witnesses, and he would have had to swear in to this ministry role, and he would have had to commit his life to doing nothing but memorizing and learning and exploring what it meant for them to follow God. And they would have studied and memorized and learned every detail of the law. And any time throughout Israel's history, they would have never allowed more than 6,000 Pharisees to rule. And there was just this, this rule that there was these upper-crust people but Nicodemus wasn't just part of this kind of brother. They called themselves actually the brotherhood. And he wasn't only just part of this 6,000 brotherhood. He was high in that. He was the upper crust of that. He was a ruling council member, the scripture says. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. This was a court of just 70 top people. And it kind of acted as a supreme court for the Jewish people. In fact, they would have had to discern disputes between people, disputes between uh, understandings of the law, but they would have also had to dealt with prophetic people that kind of said prophecies that didn't come true. And they would have, they would have been the, the sounding board for all of that stuff. So here's Nicodemus, this upper crust, this 1% guy who has kind of had all of the answers programmed into him, and he's committed his life before people to be part of it. And not only that, he's rose to be one of the 70 that makes the rules for everyone else. William Barclay in his commentary puts it like this. It's clear that it is an amazing thing that Nicodemus should come to Jesus at all. It's a miracle that this guy who has all of the answers at his fingertips and thinks he has life and his faith figured out that he should even come to Jesus at all. Nicodemus, guy who seemingly has it all together and has all the information at his fingertips, finds everything he needs to know about God, begins unraveling as he sees Jesus. And he becomes unglued as wonder drives him to not only just watch Jesus from afar, but to actually engage him one evening. Now we see Nicodemus believes Jesus is from God because he affirms that right away. He says, we know that you are a teacher. And he knows that God is with Jesus because he has witnessed signs in which Jesus has performed. Looking for some real answers to settle his wonder, he walks up to Jesus at night. Why at night? Why do you choose to engage Jesus at night? Well, there's several reasons that that could be. And one of the first ones is that everyone knows is, well, maybe he was embarrassed and he wanted to hide in the cover of night. That is the answer that we give often. However, there's some other cultural understandings that might be happening here. See, at night he could engage in caution without committing himself or his other fellow Sanhedrin. 
Wherever he went, he represented that 70 that he was part of. And so if he would engage Jesus during the day, it would look like he's committing all of them to Jesus. That would have been a shock for the people that would have witnessed it. During the day was a time culturally to hold public debate. So if, if the Sanhedrin would have approached Jesus during the day to figure out what he's all about and who he is and what he's teaching, it would have automatically looked like a public debate. People in the markets would have started coming around instantly to, to watch. There would be no chance for real conversation. Culturally, it was also a time, night was a time, to engage in personal study. See, daytime was meant to be out in the public and being missional in their neighborhoods, and they were to be training and discipling people during that time. And if they wanted to learn something else uh, or explore an idea of the law, they were supposed to do so at night, which was considered their own time. And so a lot of times, culturally, they would, they would go around and engage other teachers and say, hey, we heard that you've been teaching this aspect of the law a little different than us, and it was a safe space in which they could engage. So a lot of times we like to make fun of Nicodemus for going at night, saying, oh, he was too scared to engage Jesus at night. But there might be some other cultural things that are happening there. But regardless why he went at night, in his wonder about the mystery of Jesus, Nicodemus is driven to pause in his busy day and create space to be transformed by Jesus. He takes time out of his busy day, and he doesn't ignore what he sees Jesus do. And he faces the mystery, this wonder that he has about who Jesus is. Explore a few other comments about this passage. In his commentary, William Barclay points out at the center of this passage is this idea of rebirth. And John goes on to use rebirth throughout his gospel as the very thing that everything else hinges on. If you don't get this, you don't get all this other stuff. William Barclay says it like this. In this fourth gospel, there are four closely interrelated ideas. Throughout the gospel of John, there's four themes. There's the idea of rebirth. There's the idea of the kingdom of God into which a man cannot enter unless he is reborn. There's this idea of the sonship of God, which you don't get unless you are reborn. And there's this idea of eternal life, which you don't get unless you are reborn. All four of these things are only accessible to being born again in the Spirit. As we talked a few weeks ago, the kingdom has these aspects of both here and now. Jesus kind of inaugurated it, and there's these aspects that are yet to come. And as Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you teach people about God, and you miss this whole thing that God is doing. The New Interpreter's Bible says it like this about this passage. Unless one is born anew, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And to see the kingdom of God is the same as to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus comes to engage Jesus. And Jesus is telling him the kingdom of God is already beginning, but you can't see it because you have not yet been reborn. N.T. Wright says the Judaism and Nic that Nicodemus and Jesus knew had a good deal to do with being born into the right family. What mattered was being a child of Abraham. Now Jesus is saying God is starting a new family in which ordinary birth isn't enough. What we see in this passage, in the story of Jesus, this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, is that we see Jesus teaches that the baptism of the water and the Spirit are needed to enter the kingdom of God, to be able to see the kingdom of God. However, Spirit baptism mattered even more than water baptism. You cannot experience or understand the mystery and wonder of the things of God without it. In verses 10 through 13, we have the first of many passages 
in which Jesus speaks about a new knowledge, indeed a new way of knowing, the way of knowing what comes from God from heaven. As we look at this vote, uh, passage inside the back of your bulletin, you'll see there's some underlines, some places to take notes and some takeaways. I encourage you just to follow along to fill those in. Sometimes we miss something on a Sunday morning. It comes, it's easier to come back throughout the week as we read this passage again and wrestle with some of the points and takeaways. Instead of looking at the theology of what it means to be born again verse, I want to address just the life of Nicodemus as a takeaway for us this morning in this Lent series. Nicodemus is seemingly having a dark night of the soul moment. Everything which he knew and he learned about God has become unglued as he watched Jesus begin to stir the dust in the streets. We all have these dark night moments of the souls throughout our life. Moments in which everything we think we know have become unglued and unraveled. Maybe we've encountered something, some doubts, some questions health problems, financial problems, a loss of our own comfort, a loss of our own traditions, or maybe it's when we wrestle with our own mortality. But we all have dark night of the moment, soul moments. Like Nicodemus, we seemingly have all the information at our fingertips. We seemingly have all of the answers. Our quest for certainty drives us to know, to prove, and to figure out everything. In fact, Often the church spends more time trying to prove what they believe to each other and to their neighbors than they do actually doing the stuff Jesus called us to do. We want to be in control. We want to be certain. And deep down we know we aren't. And that, that in itself, that uncertainty of actually not being in control is what usually scares us the most. It's that which is inside us that we don't normally like to face. But even in uncertainty... We can experience what God is doing and trust in him despite this tension of wonder and mystery in the world. And Jesus invites us, as N.T. Wright says, into a new way of knowing. It's a way of knowing that comes from God, from heaven. In our faith, we need these tools of wonder and mystery. Sometimes we grow up thinking we have our prime directive as Johnny Five in the movie Short Circuit. We know who we are and something happens and it becomes unraveled. We, we begin to become unglued and we lose it all and we get uncomfortable. As things become unglued in our lives, with all we think we know, it's important to follow the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. In these dark night, dark night of the soul moments, pause from needing to know in your life. As we look at our Lent season as a way of reminding us to create space, create space to Pause yourself from needing to know. Surrender your own understanding. Because the other thing is sometimes we think we know everything about God and we actually miss who God is like Nicodemus because he's actually bigger than what we think. As we follow the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, we see this. It's important to create space to meet with Jesus. Be quicker to affirm than judge. Usually when something feels like it's going to unglue us or unravel us, we are quick to judge it rather than affirm it. But here is Nicodemus, this Sanhedrin, who thinks he knows it all. When he encounters Jesus, instead of attacking him like other Pharisees will, he says, it's obvious you are from God. He affirms rather than judges. Bring your questions to Jesus. Don't be afraid to face those things that you don't talk to yourself about. Like Nicodemus, it might be 
mean being reborn to unlearn and to see God in bigger ways. Nicodemus had to be stretched. He had to be reborn to be able to see what God was actually doing because he was missing it. And there are times in our lives that we have all the answers and we are actually missing out on what God is doing because we think we know everything. And the minute we hit that point, we stop looking and we stop learning. Despite your ability to fully understand what God is doing, trust and lift Jesus up. And six, lean on the Holy Spirit for knowing and not on your own understanding. And as you meet for Jesus this way this week, I encourage you to consider these four things. First, we need to be careful we do not redefine, reshape, or reduce the need for God's wonder and mystery. We don't have to be afraid of information. In my teens, when I left the church, when I began to unravel and unglue, and I spent uh, six and a half years outside of the church, I decided that I was going to find out who I was and what I believed at all costs. And, and I would stand up, I'd come home from after a 12-hour day of work, and I would just sit up all night on my porch in Strasbourg reading the Quran, the Book of Mormon. Uh, I read Confucius, anything that I could to figure out what was truth. In fact, I even started to venture into early church history, and it was there that I found my love for not only church history, but my love for Jesus, as it became an apologetic to me that drove me back to faith. I don't want us to be afraid of information. Sometimes the church gets afraid of information. In that era that I was doing that, my Christian friends and church friends were saying, whoa, you got to be careful, that's going to lead you astray. Sometimes we get in this fear of information. And I don't want us to remove ourselves from this culture of information. But I do want us to be aware of some side effects of it. Too often we allow information, uh, our information on demand culture to redefine how we relate to Jesus. Unfortunately, so many times that we expect everything to be on demand, we expect the same thing with Jesus. And the minute we encounter him, we say, uh, Lord, I'm dealing with this, fix it. We get discouraged when Jesus doesn't give an instant answer or reply. Information on demand has a way of redefining how we relate to Jesus. Nicodemus, uh, Jesus answers Nicodemus straight on. Or he doesn't in this story. What is this? Seemingly not straight on. Nicodemus comes and Jesus begins to give him this thing that makes Nicodemus wonder more than have answers. And we look to Jesus as a source of answers, but Jesus actually instills in him more wonder and mystery. Why? Because he needs to enlarge his mindset. With so much news floating around, we can get in a habit of knowing, uh, wanting to only trust that which we can know or touch personally, right? We even categorize our news now. We have alternative news, we have fake news, we have conservative news, we have liberal news, we have local news, national news, right? Unfortunately, with all this information coming at us, it, it starts to reshape the ways that we respond to things. And we get into this culture, and if you would really study uh, the millennial generation as, as a lot of people are, they're finding that if you can't touch it, you don't trust it. And unfortunately, this information on demand culture kind of begins to reshape the ways in which we also relate to Jesus. If we can't tr trust him, uh, with that which we can touch about him, then it mustn't be true. In other words, that we only believe about Jesus that which we've known for ourselves. Nicodemus' news of this Messiah stirring trouble uh, 
didn't make him realize that Jesus was a Messiah right away. He said he was a teacher because it wasn't news that he encountered himself. WebMD, as I said earlier, makes us think we are all doctors, and Wikipedia makes us think we're all historians. Too often we allow our know-it-all-everything attitude to reduce the need for a God of mystery in our lives, a God who is full of wonder and mystery. But Jesus says, unless you press in to be reborn and stretched by the Spirit, you're not going to have any answers. Next, the attitude in which we approach the wonder and the mystery of God with matters. We might judge Nicodemus for coming to Jesus in the cover of night or thinking too logically, but he still, as I said, intentionally paused in his day to be transformed. Nicodemus saw the mystery and wonder around Jesus and knew he was of God. And Nicodemus' attitude wasn't looking to undermine or question or attack Jesus, but he came just to learn. As you sit before the Lord this week, look to learn more than bring. Remember that. As you sit with the Lord, look to learn more than bring. Nicodemus approaches Jesus with a need for answers. Even though he seemingly knew everything and had all the information at his fingertips, people have been approaching the mystery of God with various ways and avenues throughout history. In fact, to understand the mystery of God was the weakness in which the tempter exploits an Eve in the Garden of Eden. You will certainly not die, the serpent says to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Listen to this lie. You will not die. Your eyes will be open and you'll be made like God. You can know everything that he knows. You can understand the mystery of good and evil. Eve's attitude wanted to be like God, or maybe even to be God. She wanted to have answers for everything. She wanted to know everything. And by her own doing. She didn't want to ask God questions when he walked with them in the cool of the evening. She wanted to eat an apple so that she could have the answers for herself. Information on demand. Someone else that had a good attitude in which the model is the prophet Isaiah. He also wanted to know more of the wonder and the mystery of God. And however, this attitude didn't drive him to figure it out for himself and to seek all the information of his culture. <clears throat> but actually, intimately invited him in to pursue the presence of God. Rather than trying to use just his own understanding. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah shows this attitude. Seek the Lord. Isaiah 55, Isaiah shows his attitude. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and to call on him while he is near. He then goes on to relay a prophetic word God gave him in relay. My thoughts are not like your thoughts, and my ways are not like your ways. Very similar to what we see Jesus telling Nicodemus. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Mystery is always bigger than us. There's no way to know it or to resolve it. The only thing we can do is model this attitude of pressing in to know more to God when he is near. So we must be willing to be stretched to see God for his ways. Uh, or, sorry, we must be willing to be stretched to see God and his ways for what they are and not through our own lens of understanding. <laughs> Nicodemus is told that he needs to be reborn of the Spirit to understand the mystery. And in his wonder, God develops 
not only our identity, but our way of seeing his wonder and mystery. Sometimes in that, God also redefines or redevelops how we see him and stretches us to see God bigger than what we understand about him. This Lent season reminds us that Jesus continually invites us deeper into the mystery to know more of God and of his hope. We live in a world that wants certainty, but deep down we know that is actually unattainable. As the worship team comes forward this morning, I encourage you to commit to sitting this week before the Lord to learn from him, not bring to him. To sit before the Lord, to wrestle with him, to allow him to be mysterious and bigger than what you understand and know. God, this morning we just look to you to restore us with a trust in you. We hope that you teach us to allow ourselves to face the tensions of wonder and of mystery. We face mystery and wonder throughout life and even in you. Help us come to terms with that. This week, help us pause and create the space to meet with you. Teach us to bring our questions to you, rebirth in us the spirit in new ways so that we can see what you are doing and not miss out on it. And despite our uncertainty at times, we'll do our best to lift you up and depend on your Holy Spirit alone for knowing. Amen.